welcome to this weekly audio digest edition of the Herald Scotland. From Friday the 28th of June to Thursday the 4th of July 2019. Read by volunteers at Q&Review, Review, Print Speaking to the Blind, at our studios in the Bishop Briggs Media Centre. The headlines in part one. Beveridge saves best for last to seal Scottish women's title. Corey Goff strolls Boulevard of Broken Dreams on day one at Wimbledon. An article by Stuart Fisher, chief sports writer. SNP ministers extend fracking licence again. Sainsbury's see sales trumble further amid tough supermarket environment. All creatures great and small to get TV series. Neil Mackay. We need to start talking about the abolition of the monarchy. An article by Neil Mackay, writer at large. The Herald, Monday, July the 1st, sport, a roundup which is starting with golf. Beveridge saves best for last to seal Scottish women's title. To say Kimberley Beveridge was shocked to win the Scottish Women's Amateur Championship was something of an understatement. The smiling, gasping 24-year-old from Aboyne just about had to reattach her jaw to her face after it had dropped in wonderment at the magnitude of her success at Barassi. I really can't believe this, she said with a disbelieving smile. During three days of surprises, upsets and shock results on the Ayrshire coast, Beveridge overcame the odds to beat the highly rated Chloe Godby on the final green with a shot that will live long in the Aberdeenshire youngster's memory. It was the shot of my life, said Beveridge, of her superbly flighted eight iron from just over 130 yards into the last, which rolled to within a couple of feet of the hole and set up a title-winning birdie. In a nip-and-tuck final of fluctuating fortunes, Beveridge rallied from two down early on to forge a two-hole lead with just three to play, only to be pegged back to all square when Godby took advantage of the par fives at 16 and 17 with birdies to draw level. Regularly 40 to 50 yards behind her opponent off the tee, Beveridge, who recovered from a shugly spell on the front nine, used her accuracy and canny short game to her advantage, and the fact she was, more often than not, hitting into the greens first seemed to suit her game. The 18th summed up her approach. As the tension mounted, she asked a big question of her opponent with that terrific second shot to up the ante. Godby couldn't come up with an answer, and Beveridge added her name to a celebrated role of honour, which includes her decorated aboyne clubmate of yore, Janet Wright. My brother Keel, her coach and PGA pro, told me just to play my own game and to just find the fairways and the greens, said Beveridge. I've always hit a short ball and I'm used to hitting into the greens first. It suits my game. Godby had trundled in a 40-footer for birdie on the second and a 30-footer on eight to move into a two-hole lead. 
but she would lose four of the next five as Beverly settled into the tussle. Goad Bay three putted the ninth to give her rival a toehold and a birdie on the next drew Beverly's level. She missed a short eagle putt on 11, which would have given her the lead, but birdies at 12 and 13 had Beverage two holes to the good. The pendulum of a ding-dong battle swung back in Godby's favour with a brace of birdies at 16 and 17, but Beverage delivered the decisive blow in the last to finish with a flourish. My Aboyne clubmate Shannon McWilliam has done really well recently, and that motivates me, added Beveridge, of the exploits of McWilliam who played in the Curtis Cup last year. I work in the pro shop at the club. Hopefully I get the day off after this. I think I deserve it. Elsewhere in the unpaid ranks, Ewan Walker lost out on a second major title and a place in the Open within the space of seven days after finishing runner-up in the European Amateur Championship in Austria. The Barassi man, who was pipped to the Amateur Championship on the final green a week past Saturday, closed with a surging 66 for a 12-under 276, but couldn't reel in Matthias Schmidt of Germany. And, And now, snooker. John Higgins and Stephen Maguire combined to win the Snooker World Cup for Scotland, beating Zhu Yulong and Liang Wenbo of China in Sunday's final. Having seen off Wales and the other Chinese pairing of Ding Junhui and Yan Bingtou in the earlier knockout rounds, the experienced Scottish duel subjected China B to a 4 nothing whitewatch in Waxi. After winning their respective singles openers, Higgins and Maguire triumphed in the doubles to go 3 nothing up in the best-of-seven clash. Maguire then secured the trophy for Scotland in the following frame against Liang, gaining a measure of revenge for the pair's loss in the 2015 final to a Chinese lineup that also featured the zoo. Higgins was also part of the last Scotland team to win a World Cup tournament, doing so alongside Stephen Hendry and Alan McManus in 1996. Cycling John Archibald was thrilled to be involved in the sharp end after the Scot finished third behind champion Ben Swift at the British Championships in Norwich. Ribble Pro Cycling's Archibald, brother of Olympic champion Katie Archibald, was finally broken by Stannard's repeated attacks during the 201.5 kilometre race. I was loving it, Archibald said. It was just like seeing it on TV. Stannard was attacking, and I was like, I've seen this so many times. I got third, and I got turned over, but I really enjoyed it. Swimming. Stephen Millen received a timely boost in his bid to recapture his lost form by winning the 200 metres freestyle last night at the Scottish Championships in Aberdeen. The 2016 Olympic silver medalist has been mired in a slump 
for over a year, with British swimming chiefs urging the Scot to consider a change of scene to reignite his career. And after one reverse after another, the 25-year-old from Perth City held off Stockport's Kyle Chisholm to capture the title. Elsewhere, Cara Hanlon of Edinburgh University surged clear of teen prospect Katie Goodburn in the 50 metres breaststroke final. Clubmate Lucy Hope powered home to win the 100 metres freestyle. Kiana McInnes denied Hannah Miley, 12 years her senior, a third title by taking 200 metres butterfly victory by 24 hundredths of a second. Canoeing Edinburgh canoeist Bradley Forbes Cryans beat Olympic champion Joe Clark but narrowly missed out on a medal in yesterday's K1 kayak final at the Slalom World Cup in Tassen, Slovenia. The 24-year-old world team champion finished second on the same course in 2016 and thrived again yesterday. A clean run timed at 87.10 seconds briefly put him in second place behind the eventual winner Giovanni Di Gennaro and he remained in bronze medal position until double world champion Peter Kouser knocked him off the podium. Forbes Cryans eventually finished fifth, one place ahead of Rio gold medalist Clark as he posted his best individual result since last summer's Krakow World Cup. It was nice to be in the final and get another top five finish, but I felt like I missed an opportunity today, he admitted. Repeating my semi-final time would have got me a medal in the final. I'll take the day off on Monday and then get back to training on Tuesday because I have a busy period ahead of me. The World Championships in Spain in September is the main focus now. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Q and Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Corey Goff strolls Boulevard of Broken Dreams on day one at Wimbledon. An article by Stuart Fisher, chief sports writer, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of July 2019. It all ended in tears after day one of Wimbledon, while Corey Goff, a 15-year-old from Atlanta, wept as she announced herself to the world with a sensational 6-4-6-4 victory over five-time champion Venus Williams, 21-year-old Naomi Osaka, the US Open champion and number two seed, simply asked to be excused her post-match interview when asked if the struggles of global fame were getting to her following 
following her 7-6-6-2 first round exit to Julia Putintseva. Can I leave, she said. I think I'm about to cry. More dreams died in the men's singles too, with two of the biggest hopes out with Wimbledon's big three biting the dust in the form of Alex Zirov of Germany and Stefanos Tsitsipas of Greece. Aged 22 and 20 respectively, the claims of the number six and number seven seeds to this title perished in a flurry of teeth, hair and limbs within half an hour of each other on the opening afternoon. This year is clearly too early for them, even if it is too early to write them off in the future. Goff wasn't the only teenager who lived up to the billing. Felix Algar Aliasime, all of 18, got the better of a 5-7-6-2-6-4-6-3 Canada Day cracker against his countryman Vasek Pospisil. Although it says it all about the yearning for fresh blood in the men's game that he was asked whether he can go the whole way after what was only his first Grand Slam win. But this was undeniably golf's day, and judging by the manner the youngest ever qualifier in the history of this event nervelessly swatted aside five-time champion Venus Williams on centre court, she may have many more here in the future. Signed to the same agency as Roger Federer, Goff looked like a younger, better version of the woman some 24 years her senior on the opposite side of the net. Whether it is this year or next, we can confidently pencil her in alongside Boris Becker and Martina Hingis in the list of talented teenagers who have made these lawns their playground. They say you should meet your heroes. Goff just beat her. I don't really know how to feel, she said, shortly after Williams netted on match point to surrender the match. The pair exchanging nice words at the net before the teenager dropped to her knees and shed a tear. That is the first time I've ever cried after winning a match. She congratulated me and I said thank you for everything she has done for me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. I wanted to tell her that, even though I had met her before, I didn't have the guts to tell her. Plenty of seasoned tennis watchers had a good gut feeling this year about Tsitsipas, a player who has more wins on the tour than anyone, including Novak Djokovic, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer. The Greek had also been a whisker away from his first Grand Slam final in Paris when he lost a heartbreaker to Stan Wawrinka. But he was comprehensively outgunned yesterday by a veteran Italian in the form of Thomas Fabiano. While the 30-year-old got the benefit of a net cord on his first break point in the final set, the world number 102 delighted the court number two crowd with some inspired tennis, leaving Tsitsipas with no excuses as he picked the bones out of a 4-6-6-3-4-6-7-6-3-6 defeat to an opponent he comprehensively defeated here last year. We have seen players my age many years ago. I would like to name Rafa, Roger. It seemed very mature and professional what they were doing, he said. 
They had consistency from a young age, something that we as the next-gen players lack, including myself as well, is this consistency week by week. It's a week-by-week -week problem, basically. Zeref, the world number five, is pretty consistent at this venue. He has never got beyond the last 16 here in five visits. By that age, his fellow German, Becker, had five Grand Slam titles to his name. No wonder he was pretty down on himself after this 6-4, 3-6, 2-6, 5-7 defeat to Czech qualifier Jiri Vesely. Even if some undisclosed off-court problem had played a part... It was kind of a typical Grand Slam match for me, he said. I started off well, then one or two things didn't go my way, and everything kind of a little bit falls apart. Yeah, I'm not very high on confidence right now. The last two days, I would say, are very rough for me personally. I'm not going to get into details, I'm just saying. Given such a boulevard of broken dreams, Augur Aliasimi was simply delighted to be in the next round, even if he was pouring scorn on the bookmakers who make him sixth favourite for the title. Obviously, I'm not saying I'm here to lose. If I can go all the way, I'll go all the way, he said. But it's a bit exaggerated to put me as maybe fifth or sixth favourite to win the title. That's a bit crazy. One old faithful, mind you, was moving, metronome-like, through this draw as usual, reigning champion Novak Djokovic, although even he had to produce some excellent tennis straight off the bat to get rid of Germany's Philipp Kohlschreiber. There were gasps when the 35-year-old Kohlschreiber, a man with a 2019 victory against him on his resume, broke the Djokovic serve in the opening game of the match. But the Serbs' class told. Having been detained for more than two hours on court in this 6-3-7-5-6-3 win, but never seriously panicked, he said it was the perfect opening to his bid to equal Bjorn Borg on five Wimbledon singles titles. Having quietly added Goran Ivanisevic to his coaching team, he revealed that he had spent time with the Croat prior to his famous 2001 triumph here and was taking some of the credit for it. He was at the Niki Pilic Tennis Academy in Germany, where I spent quite a lot of time between age of 12 and 16, said Djokovic. It happened to be that famous 2001 when he received the wild card here in Wimbledon and he came over to the academy for several years. I had the permission to approach him while he was training and to bring him some snacks because he was hungry, training a lot. I think those snacks really made the difference for him in Wimbledon. One man hoping to emulate Ivanisevic and become the first wild card to win the title here is Feliciano Lopez, the 37-year-old Spaniard. A simple straight sets win over qualifier Marcus Giron of the USA saw the Queen's Club champion move quietly through to the second round where he will face number 10 seed Karen Kachakanov. Article from Herald Scotland, Tuesday 2nd of July 2019. News. SNP ministers extend fracking licence again. Exclusive by Tom Gordon, Scottish political editor. 
SNP ministers have extended a licence for fracking across central Scotland for a second time, almost two years after boasting in Parliament that they had banned the practice. The Scottish Government added a year to the unconventional gas licence that covers 400 square kilometres south and west of Falkirk until June 2020. Energy Minister Paul Wheelhouse admitted it would be a disappointment to some. Anti-fracking campaigners said the extension beggars belief. Known as Petroleum Exploration and Development Licence, PEDL 162, the licence is 80% owned by Grangemouth operators Ineos and 20% by Reach Coal Seam Gas Limited. The Scottish Government was criticised last year for extending the licence for 12 months, with environmentalists warning it added to the confusion over the status of fracking. Three SNP MPs had also asked the government not to renew PEDL 162, which was first granted by the UK government to reach coal in 2008, with Enios buying its share in 2014. The licence had been due to expire on the 30th of June 2018, but the SNP government extended it, using powers devolved to Holyrood months earlier. The second year-long extension was revealed in a letter to the Scottish Tories at 4.30pm last Friday, the day after MSPs left for summer recess. Mr Wheelhouse said it would have been a dereliction of government responsibility not to have considered the licensee's request for more time. However, Mr Burnett said the fact that this was sneaked out at 4.30pm on a day after MSPs had left for the summer recess speaks volumes. The SNP's ban on fracking in Scotland has already been exposed in court as a sham. This simply confirms that Nicola Sturgeon's government is still saying one thing in public and quite another in private. Supporters of a ban, particularly Patrick Harvey and the Greens, must feel completely duped. Critics say fracking, which involves pumping pressurised water and chemicals into underground shale beds to release natural gas, is a risk to climate change and public health. Advocates say it could support hundreds of new jobs and add millions to the economy. Ineos, which currently imports US shale gas to Grangemouth to use as a chemical industry feedstock, has long expressed an interest in fracking in Scotland instead. The Scottish Government's preferred policy position is not to support fracking, but it has agonised for years without coming to a final decision on whether to allow it or not. It set up an expert panel in 2013, introduced a moratorium in 2015, ordered more research in 2016, and then consulted on fracking in 2017. In October 2017, Mr Wheelhouse appeared to have settled the matter, telling MSPs there is, in effect, a ban on unconventional oil and gas activities in Scotland. A week later, a series of ministers also told the SNP conference there was a ban. Nicola Sturgeon told delegates fracking is now banned in Scotland and Deputy First Minister John Swinney said there was a ban on fracking here in Scotland. However, the following May, after Ineos challenged the ban in court, the government admitted it wasn't banned after all and its lawyer explained the term was only a PR gloss. The government spent £175,000 of taxpayers' money on external legal advice for the case. In March this year, just days before the government was due to give its final decision, 
the government announced yet more consultations to clarify points raised in the last one on the business, environmental and regulatory aspects. Mr Wheelhouse said at the time that the government wanted to set out its position as soon as possible after this process is complete, but failed to put any timetable on it. In his new letter to the Scottish Tories about the PEDL162 extension, the Minister claimed the government was moving at pace towards finalising its position. However, as the latest consultations only closed on June the 25th, its assessments were ongoing. He wrote, I have approved an extension to the initial term of PEDL162 for a period of 12 months. This will allow a period of time for the conclusion of the policy-making process and the licensees to consider their position in the light of the finalised policy in due course. I appreciate that this may come as a disappointment to some, but I assure you that, similar to the effect of the extension last summer, this does not change the Scottish Government's preferred policy position of not supporting the development of unconventional oil and gas in Scotland. I would like to stress that, in the meantime, no local authority can grant planning permission for any proposed fracking or coal bed methane project without advising ministers, which then permits us to call the application in, and we would defer any decision on any planning application that did come forward until the policy-making process on our preferred position is completed. Scottish Lib Dem MSP Liam MacArthur said, this is not reassuring news for those whose property sits in or near sites potentially earmarked for fracking, or indeed anyone who cares about protecting our beautiful natural environment. Nicola Sturgeon stood up in Parliament and declared that fracking was banned. Then her government lawyers stood up in the court of session and argued that it wasn't. Now her minister has confirmed that Ineos's licence to frack has been extended once again. Ministers are dragging their feet on a real legislative ban, and it is sending completely the wrong message when we should be committing to an all-out assault on Scotland's emissions. Liberal Democrats are clear that embarking on a whole new front of carbon-based fuels and energy production would do nothing to help meet our climate commitments. Friends of the Earth Scotland director Dr Richard Dixon said, it is very disappointing that the Scottish Government has opted to extend this licence again when people locally and nationally have said no to fracking so clearly. The operators already have had two extensions to this licence and despite having consents in place before the moratorium on fracking, they hadn't fulfilled their drilling commitments, so clearly this licence should have been revoked. Extending this licence adds to the confusion about whether fracking is to be banned or not and prolongs the uncertainty for the communities at risk. We urge the Scottish Government to move forward with its decision-making process, legislate to ban fracking and draw a line under this issue for good. Donald Campbell, chair of the Broad Alliance of Community Groups Opposing Fracking, said... It beggars belief that the Scottish Government would consider extending this licence for unconventional oil and gas. The First Minister, Cabinet Secretaries, Ministers and MSPs have spoken most eloquently, stating that fracking will not happen in Scotland. Communities across the land rely on our elected representatives to stay true to their word and ensure that no licences are granted for unconventional oil and gas. Penny Cole, speaking on behalf of Frackwatch, said, 
If the Scottish Government means to ensure no fracking, why does it go on extending the existing licences? They have the power to end them. Why don't they exercise it? We thought we had won when 60,000 people said no to fracking, but actually the threat remains. It means the communities have to stay on the alert. We cannot say, job done, our government has listened. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald, 3rd of July 2019. Sainsbury's Sea sails trumble further amid tough supermarket environment. Mr. Corp is expected to face criticism from some investors at the supermarket's annual general meeting on Thursday, following the collapse of its planned mega merger with Asda earlier in the year. The retailer saw like-for-like sales decline by 1.6% in the 16 weeks to June 29th, as its decline accelerated from 0.9% in the previous quarter. Total retail sales, excluding fuel, fell by 1.2% during a period as the company said it was impacted by a tough retail environment. Grocery sales declined by 0.5% over a period, as the decline in sales slowed down from 0.6% in the previous period. Sainsbury's also reported sales slumps of 3.1% and 4.5% respectively for its general merchandise and clothing divisions. For sale figures come just months after the competition watchdog, the CMA blocked Sainsbury's from joining forces of big fellow Big Four supermarket Asda. Sainsbury's have tried to win other shoppers in recent months by lowering prices, with reductions on more than 1,000 food and grocery items. The supermarket said it has also committed to reduce its net debt by at least 600 million over the next three years. It has also outlined significant store investment, which will make improvements in 400 stores nationwide. Mike Coop, chief executive of Sainsbury's, said we continue to adapt our business to changing shopping habits and made good progress in a challenging market. We reduced prices on over 1,000 items every day, food and grocery products, and improved our relative performance. In a tough trading environment, we gained market share in key general merchandise categories and in clothing, where we are now the UK's fifth largest retailer by volume. Hugh and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. They're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an access to audio ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141-772-3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl 
at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qandreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qandreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland Arts Recorded on the 1st of July 2019 All Creatures Great and Small to Get TV Series By Chief Reporter The Herald David Leask It was a show which somehow defined a gentler age As Britain suffered first the winter of discontent And then the horrors of the early years of Thatcherism Viewers by their millions tuned in to a Scottish tale of funny animals and even funnier people who looked after them. For seven seasons, starring in 1978, All Creatures Great and Small mesmerised almost everybody with its stories of an Edinburgh vet who found himself thrown in to the so often wonderfully eccentric Yorkshire Dales of the 1930s. Now the classic drama, based on the novels of James Herriot, is to come back to the small screen. Time to coincide with the 50th anniversary of Herriot's first books, Channel 5 will show a new series of All Creatures Great and Small and a Christmas special. Sebastian Cardwell, digital channel controller at Channel 5, said, James Herriot has a special place in the heart of the public, and the commission of this iconic drama series against the stunning backdrop of the Yorkshire Dales is set to bring joy to a new army of TV viewers. The original books affectionately captured a unique slice of British life in challenging times. We hope the charming, heartwarming stories of community and compassion will resonate with new audiences. James Herriot's All Creatures Great and Small is to be adapted for a new TV series and Christmas special ahead of the 50th anniversary of the original publication of the books. The episodes will be filmed on location in Yorkshire later this year, Channel 5 has announced. James Herriot was the pen name of real-life veterinary surgeon James Alfred White, and also the chief protagonist of the stories, a fictional young country vet, no first published in 1970, they were set in the 1930s. An inspector of war and depression often sits behind the light-hearted and innocent stories of Harriet, who had to visit farms in a clapped-out car. First published in 1970, they followed the cast of farmers and townsfolk who lived and worked in the Yorkshire Dales in the 1930s. Forty years ago, the rural world portrayed would have been that of their childhood. How the nostalgia will be for 1970s TV, not 1930s farm life. The adaptation will be made by production company Playground, which was responsible for Howard's End and Wolf Hall. Colin Callender, executive producer and chief executive of Playground, said, Revisiting James Herriot's beloved stories is an immense privilege, and we are honoured that Alf White's family have entrusted us with this legacy. It is a responsibility we take very seriously, at a time when the country feels more divided than ever. Harriet's glorious books remind us how to connect and belong again. The series will embrace the fun and the nostalgia of revisiting the England of the past, while celebrating Harriet's values that, despite all our current upheaval, still underpin British life today. Jim White and Rosie Page, White's children, said, The books of James Harriet have enchanted millions of readers worldwide for almost half a century. We are delighted that our father's work will be brought to life once again for a new generation of viewers, great and small. This is not quite the first attempt to bring the series back. It originally ran from 1978 to 1980, over three series based directly on the Herriot books. But it returned for four more series, from 1988 to 1990, based on the original scripts. The original All Creatures Great and Small, which drew audiences of 13 million, 
and I kind rarely seen today, was to bring stardom to Welsh actor Christopher Timothy, who played Harriet, as well as the late Robert Hardy, who acted as his boss, Siegfried Varnon, and the future Doctor Who, Peter Davison, who starred as Siegfried's unreliable younger brother, Tristan. By chief reporter, the Herald, David Lees. Neil Mackay, we need to start talking about the abolition of the monarchy. An article by Neil Mackay, writer at large, published in Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of July 2019. It wasn't just the usual public displays of bowing and scraping which struck me as odd and depressing during the Queen's Scottish visit, but the complete lack of questioning of both the royal family's place in society and the institution of monarchy itself. On an occasion meant to mark Devolution's 20th anniversary, where was the discussion about the right to rule? Where was the scrutiny of privilege, power and wealth? Why is the monarchy, which stands at the very heart of our democracy, not subjected to rigorous debate? The monarchy is often defended on the grounds that the Queen is a good woman. I know nothing of the Queen's soul. I can neither judge her good or bad, but I accept many see her as a person of moral standing. However, the character of Elizabeth Windsor is meaningless in any debate about monarchy. The institution of monarchy should have been buried decades, if not centuries ago. Like the death penalty, or denying votes to women, or jailing people for who they have sex with, the idea that a person has a hereditary right to rule stands in opposition to every principle of modernity. What slaves it makes us to accept this state of affairs. This isn't a call for some Robespierre revolution. Britain, England in particular, has been sucking on the crack pipe of royalty for too long to be weaned off any time soon. What's needed, though, is an intelligent ongoing conversation which challenges the accepted wisdom that monarchy is a good thing when it clearly isn't. The time is ripe for that debate. It may be an ugly thing to say, but the Queen's age makes the discussion pertinent. Even Republicans like me accept that the monarchy is safe as long as she lives. However, the entire fabulation, every palace and power, every penny and privilege needs to be put to the test before her crown passes on. I struggle to find one argument to sustain monarchy. People cite tradition. It used to be traditional to burn witches. The traditions of this country have served us badly. Britain clings to the past like a drowning sailor. If the country hadn't been so obsessed with the war, the flag and the royals, we might have seen clearer and avoided the red, white and blue disaster that's Brexit. The royals are in the DNA of fervid English nationalism and exceptionalism. After tradition comes the tourism argument. Rich Americans spend good money gawping at Buckingham Palace. Is anyone stupid enough to accept instant second-class status in their own country in return for tourist dollars that will never come their way? It truly is a case of selling your birthright for a mess of pottage. 
we're the butt of a disgraceful, sick joke which we've played on ourselves. We take a handful of people and elevate them, gifting them gilded lives, while at the same time the UN describes the poverty in Britain as tragic and systemic. Our sense of shame should be boiling over, but we don't even discuss the rights and wrongs of monarchy anymore, let alone the idea of abolition. The cooing over royal babies is particularly disgusting. A child is born into the world who will never financially struggle a moment in their life. A child has power and prestige heaped upon it in the cradle, like gifts from fairy godmothers, even if that child should grow up to be intellectually or morally inferior to many of the rest of us. Monarchy murders meritocracy. Social mobility barely exists in the UK. The top professions are dominated by public schools and Oxbridge. No wonder. The monarchy effectively codifies inequality in law. Britain remains a country of the 1% and the Queen is the great symbol for that class-ridden stratification of society. Meghan and Harry have spent millions in public funds doing up their already free home, Frogmore Cottage, in the grounds of Windsor Castle. The final bill is expected to be £3.2 million. It will be the perfect home for their baby. There was a headline in one of the glossy magazines recently which read, Why the Royals Can't Stop Giggling. It had lots of pictures of Harry and William and all the rest of them laughing. I couldn't help but think, they're laughing at us. Amid all the squandering of money on these people, it feels redundant to make the point that there are working families unable to pay their mortgages across the land and jobless families struggling to clothe and feed themselves, yet the British doff their cap and don't bat an eyelid. The philosopher... Thomas Paine said, A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right and raises at first a formidable outcry in defence of custom. But the tumult soon subsides. Time makes more converts than reason. Britain, with its stubborn anti-intellectualism and ingrained deference, has refrained from critical thinking about the royals. One moment spent in true thought about monarchy and what the institution says about Britain, what it symbolises within our society, and the entire edifice would logically come tumbling down. Monarchy is incompatible with equality. There was one person who dared to hint that the Emperor had no clothes, though. When the Queen came north, Patrick Harvey, co-leader of the Greens, refrained from the usual obsequiousness, dropped the phrase, Your Majesty, from his address to Holyrood, and simply to refer to the Queen and the rest of the audience as friends. Mr Harvey also stated that it's the people of Scotland who are sovereign, no one else. That simple levelling of bringing the Queen down to the same status as the rest of us was an important act which quietly and politely said not everyone accepts this grotesquerie. Britain is locked on a path of seismic and inevitable constitutional change and the royals will have to change with the times. 
Britain may soon be a rump state with a unified Ireland to the west, an independent Scotland to the north and a lost Europe across the Channel. The Queen may find herself ruling over a very little England indeed. Whether the monarchy continues elsewhere in these islands after her death remains to be seen. But the conversation needs to begin now. Neil Mackay is Scotland's columnist of the year. That's the end of part one. After the break, we'll be coming back with more great articles from the Herald Scotland. Visually impaired people are being invited to see if they are eligible for a free, specially adapted radio from a charity. The British Wireless for the Blind Fund, BWBF, provides the equipment to those with sight loss around the UK who meet its criteria. Radio is a lifeline to those who are blind and partially sighted, providing companionship and helping them to keep in touch with what's going on in the world, as well as in the local community. BWBF offers equipment free of charge to those who have sight loss and are in receipt of a means-tested benefit. BWBF is launching its Reaching Out campaign to try and increase awareness about their equipment and help more people who are blind and partially sighted. Our regional development manager, Sophie Weldon, said, Our radios are designed so that a person with sight loss can use them easily and independently. All equipment is delivered to the home by a volunteer who sets it all up and provides support in using it. We offer a range of equipment, digital radios, CD players, memory stick players, internet radio and even a specially designed app. Our radios are vital to someone who cannot see. They provide news, information and entertainment, but also, more importantly, companionship and a friendly service. If you or someone you know is interested in a BWBF radio, please contact Sophie Weldon at sophie at blind.org.uk. That is S-O-P-H-I-E at B-L-I-N-D dot org dot U-K or phone 01283 790 that's 01283 or on 07540-724-063. find out more about the British Wireless for the Blind Fund, follow us on Twitter at British Wireless, like us on Facebook, or go to blind.org.uk. Now, back to the main programme. Welcome back. The headlines in part two. Can Holyrood rid Scottish football of sectarianism? Margaret Taylor. Injustice breeds injustice for Glasgow's equal pay women. An article by Margaret Taylor, business correspondent, stroke columnist. Scotland's GP crisis forces discrimination against medical students from the rest of the UK. David Beckham's fatherly kisses show love in an air-kissing world. An article by Katrina Agenda. Constitutional dilemma looms if we have a PM without a Commons majority. Ewan Walker hopes it's third time lucky in open championship push. An article by Nick Roger, golf correspondent. The Herald, Monday, July the 1st, Sport, the Matthew Lindsay column. Can Holyrood rid Scottish football of sectarianism? 
The prospect of Holyrood once again intervening in Scottish football's ongoing battle against crowd disorder and sectarianism, and possibly even introducing new legislation, is concerning for both clubs and their supporters, including those who are capable of behaving themselves at matches. The offensive behaviour at football and threatening communications Scotland Act, which was mercifully repealed last year, was hardly a resounding success story, was it? That badly worded and flawed law, which even Liberty, a civil liberties organisation, roundly condemned for being too great an intrusion into freedom of expression, underlined that the football authorities not our elected representatives, are best running football for all their faults. But could intervention from Scottish governments be what is needed to finally rid the game in this country of the bigotry which has blighted it for decades and shows no sign, despite the best efforts of Celtic and Rangers and scores of other well-intentioned people over the years, of abating any time soon? Humza Yusuf, the Justice Secretary, SNP, MSP and Celtic fan, this week warned that the government will get involved if he feels that clubs are failing to properly address an issue he described as a vile cancer as he announced an additional £530,000 of funding for anti-sectarian organisations. My challenge to the football clubs and others is, show me how you're going to act. Tell me how you're going to root this out, said Yusuf. If you don't, then we reserve the right to act. I'll look at legislation we currently have, like licensing laws, for example. I'll look at potential solutions, like strict liability, for example. We will not rule them out, and we will not take them off the table. All the options remain very firmly on the table. Opponents of strict liability, where clubs face a range of punishments, including, in the worst cases, points deductions, if their followers misbehave regardless of the preventative measures they have taken, argue that it has failed to have any discernible impact where it has been used. The repeated fines that Celtic have been hit with by UEFA, have certainly not done anything to deter the troublemakers. But another measure under examination is to give councils greater licensing powers and the ability to close grounds. Every stadium with a capacity of more than 10,000 is required to hold a safety licence and Parliament could examine the the awarding of them in greater detail. A model that is used in England, where the sports ground safety authority holds great sway, is being looked at. There was unquestionably an alarming rise in the incidence of crowd disorder last season. The reputation of Scottish football took a battering as missiles were thrown at match officials, players and managers. Fireworks and smoke canisters were hurled onto the playing surface and individuals were subjected to chants of sad orange bee and sad fenian bee in high-profile matches 
which in some cases were being broadcast live on television. It is unfair to say that growing unrest is taken lightly by clubs and nothing is being done. Both Hearts and Hibs have acted decisively and quickly. Spectators attending games at Easter Road towards the end of last season had to pass by sniffer dogs. Anybody concealing pyrotechnics had no chance of getting past them. Their Tynecastle rivals, meanwhile, closed a section of their Wheatfield Road stand in their final two games. In the past, Celtic have done much the same. After a league game against Motherwell at Fir Park back in 2013, in which £10,000 worth of damage was caused to their opponent's stadium and flares set off, they suspended 128 of their fans from their games, both home and away. In addition, they temporarily relocated 250 supporters who had season tickets for Section 111 of Parkhead, the area which houses the altar group, the Green Brigade. They also shut the safe standing section for two games in 2017 for serious incidents of unsafe behaviour, fireworks which were set off under banners in an inadvisable tribute to the Lisbon Lions in a league game against Hearts, as well as an illicit banner in a Champions League qualifier with Linfield. Rangers too wasted no time in identifying and handing an indefinite ban to the moron who made monkey gestures at Scott Sinclair during a game against Celtic at Ibrox two years ago. But what exactly do these clubs do, as is often the case, when thousands of supporters sing sectarian songs en masse? How can any business possibly ban so many of its customers and hope to remain solvent. If they close a section of a stadium for bigoted chanting for one game, what do they do if it happens again? A precedent, after all, has been set. Perhaps the answer lies in the responsibility being taken out of their hands. If supporters know that they're going to be unable to see their team play, if they understand that there will be repercussions for the club they love, then maybe, just maybe, they might just think twice about belting out the Billy Boys or other songs of the same ilk. Celtic may have been fined repeatedly by European football's governing body for a string of offences, but for a club with a turnover that exceeded £100 million in the last financial year, the penalties have been trifling. Possibly if the consequences of their actions were more serious, fans would conduct themselves differently. If it is at least worth finding out, there are too many in Scottish football who feel that sectarianism is harmless and acceptable. Meanwhile, Griffiths' form augurs well for Scotland. The opposition may have been inferior to the sides that Celtic will face in Champions League qualifying this month, or indeed their opening Ladbrokes Premiership matches of the 2019-20 campaign. But seeing Lee Griffiths score in the Parkhead Club's opening two pre-season friendlies against SC Pinkerfield and Weiner SC in Austria last week was heartening news for their supporters and any neutral observer with an ounce of humanity. 
There is a long way still to go for the man who took an extended sabbatical from football last season to battle depression. It is, though, to be hoped the striker is fit and available for Scotland's Euro 2020 qualifiers against Russia and Belgium in September. If you are blind or partially sighted, or know somebody who is, they may be eligible to receive a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio, where our daily podcasts are available. To qualify for a free permanent loan from BWBF, you need to be resident in the UK, registered blind or partially sighted, over the age of 8, and in receipt of a means-tested benefit, or have a parent or guardian in receipt if you are under 18. If you think you qualify, you can find your local agent at www.blind.org.uk and remember, when setting up the player, ask for the Cune Review channels. Now, back to the main programme. Margaret Taylor, Injustice Breeds Injustice for Glasgow's Equal Pay Women. An article by Margaret Taylor, business correspondent, stroke columnist, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of July 2019. Susan Aiken has plenty of reason to celebrate. The leader of Glasgow City Council has, after all, just made good on her promise to sort out her city's equal pay dispute with thousands of female workers last week starting to receive their share of a £548 million settlement that was thrashed out after Ms Aiken came to power. It was quite a moment and one the SNP councillor can justifiably be proud of. It was a big moment for the women involved, too, though their payslips have told them for years that the work they do is of little consequence. The settlement means the cooks, cleaners and carers on whose backs the city is built are finally being recognised for the contribution they make. The fact that some individual payments will run into many thousands of pounds, many thousands of pounds that should have been in their pockets or in their banks all along, is validation of that. Only not everyone has cause to celebrate. Indeed, for some of the women involved, the settlement is a cause for despair, with the council taking the opportunity of its workers finally having some cash to spare to call in some of their debts. It should come as no surprise that some women who have spent decades working for discriminatory wages have been unable to make ends meet, with many of the council's own staff falling into council tax arrears. Though most have been repaying those debts through monthly deductions from them already too low wages, the council is using their lump sum payments to recover some lump sums of their own, Around 200 women entitled to a payout will receive no settlement as a result. There is no question that these women should pay their debts. The council tax fund is, after all, something we all contribute to and all receive some kind of benefit from. But the way this is being handled stinks. So much of the Glasgow equal pay battle was about women who had previously had very little agency taking control of their own lives and livelihoods, and the settlement process should honour that. Yet in a move that reeks of inflexible bureaucracy, the council is deciding for some how their payback should be spent. It is not a good look. 
These women have been taken for fools for long enough. The very least the council could do is trust them to handle their own cash. Worse still, the local authority is forcing its staff to pay what they owe it when it still hasn't fully paid what it owes them, and in most cases never will. Sure, Susan Aiken can talk about delivering justice to thousands of people, but the truth is that the equal pay settlement will never pay every person every penny that they have rightfully earned, with the law stipulating that individual claims can only be backdated for five years. As a result, only those who joined the equal pay battle from the start are being paid everything they are owed. The 750 women who filed a claim when the settlement was announced in January are in line for significantly less, while around 2,000 potentially eligible women who never filed a claim will receive nothing. It is a problem that, despite everyone's best intentions, will remain insurmountable. On top of that, the settlements currently being paid will only make amends for the past while the women continue to be discriminated against in the present because the discredited pay system that caused the problem in the first place remains in place. Yes, work is underway to replace it, but it will be at least 18 months before that is complete. Expecting anyone to repay their full debt to the council in the meantime is at best tone deaf and at worst crass. Yet all of this ignores what is perhaps the greatest injustice of all, that the council tax these women are being forced to pay in one fell swoop discriminates against low earners like them while enabling the richest to continue to prosper. Designed to eradicate the problems caused by Margaret Thatcher's hated and hateful poll tax. Council tax initially looked like a more equitable scheme precisely because a system of rebates takes account of the disparity in people's individual economic circumstances. The problem is that for lower earners who still have to pay something, tying council tax to 1991 property values has proved disastrous. Indeed, while property values in affluent areas have soared since the 90s, those in areas where the lowest earners live have barely moved at all, meaning the amount the least well-off pay as a proportion of that value is now significantly higher. The imperative to ease the burden on the poorest by finding ways of making the richest pay proportionally more should be clear for all to see. The Greens have long argued for council tax to be scrapped in favour of a more progressive regime, with the party's Scottish leader Patrick Harvey making it a condition of his support for the SNP's last budget. Yet while the Nationalists pledged as long ago as 2007 to replace council tax with a local income tax, and while both First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and Finance Secretary Derek Mackay continue to declare themselves open to reform, so far no changes have been forthcoming. The upshot for the Glasgow women is that the financial odds were stacked against them long before they were willfully underpaid by their employer. Injustice, it seems, breeds injustice. 
If ever there was an argument for a complete overhaul of the council tax system, that is it. When Glasgow City Council announced that its first equal pay awards had been made, the First Minister congratulated Ms Aiken on her fantastic achievement, saying on Twitter that she was very proud of her party colleague's achievement. Yet, unless and until the wider issues impacting the Glasgow women's finances are dealt with, there will remain very little that Ms Aiken, Ms Sturgeon, or their party can actually take pride in. Because while higher wages are one thing, if the bills they have to be spent on remain unfair and unmanageable, then nobody stands to benefit. Remember, this weekly digest programme is just a selection of what we produce. You can access more daily content online for free at qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts for free daily podcasts of the Herald Scotland and Evening Times and weekly digests of the National and Inside Soap magazine. Alternatively, you can access all of these services via a BWBF Sonata Plus internet radio player. Now, back to the main programme. Article from Herald Scotland Tuesday, 2nd of July 2019, News Scotland's GP crisis forces discrimination against medical students from the rest of the UK by Andrew Denham, education correspondent. Medical students from the rest of the UK who want to train in Scotland will face discrimination under radical plans to shore up the health service. Under a new Scottish Government policy, the number of medical students who live north of the border will be increased by 100, while those from England, Wales and Northern Ireland will be reduced by the same amount. The Government accepts the policy will indirectly disadvantage students from the rest of the UK, RUK, but argues the positive gain in the Scottish workforce justifies the move. It also accepts there has been opposition from Scottish universities who can charge £9,000 a year in fees to RUK students. The plan is part of a drive to reduce a chronic shortage of GPs across the country. According to the Royal College of General Practitioners Scotland, there will be a shortfall of 856 whole-time equivalent GPs by 2021. Part of the problem is that universities in Scotland train a smaller proportion of Scottish medical students than other parts of the UK, and therefore more of the doctors trained here leave after the completion of their studies. The Scottish Government has already increased the number of available medical school places by 190 compared to levels in 2016. But a report on the issue states, in addition to growing the workforce, it's clear we need to retain more of those we train. It adds, evidence shows that Scotland domiciled graduates from Scottish medical schools are retained at almost twice the rate of graduates from the rest of the UK. Consequently, despite recent significant investment, evidence confirms that if we do not take action to improve the retention of medical undergraduates, then this investment will not translate into the medical workforce that we need. The report says, Replacing 100 RUK medical students with 100 Scots on a phased basis over the next three years would help to retain medical school graduates in Scotland in the long term, with estimates suggesting an increase of 36 a year. On the issue of discrimination, the report states, 
It is expected that those of Scottish national origin will generally benefit from the policy proposal. English, Northern Irish and Welsh nationals are likely to be indirectly disadvantaged. Our rationale for this policy, however, is the positive gain in terms of workforce, estimated at 36 doctors a year once the policy is fully implemented, justifies any indirect disadvantage. In all of the circumstances, it is considered that protecting medical school places in Scottish universities for Scotland's domiciled students is a legitimate aim and is a fair exercise of the Scottish Government's devolved powers. On balance, the means of achieving the aim is appropriate and necessary and could not be achieved by less discriminatory means. Alistair Sim, Director of University Scotland, said it was unfortunate that students from the rest of the UK would be disadvantaged. He said, We welcome the opportunity for more Scottish students to study medicine, especially as there is such a high demand for the course. We understand the rationale behind this policy. Evidence shows Scottish domiciled graduates are twice as likely to take up work in Scotland than graduates from the rest of the UK. However, the overall medical student headcount remains the same, which means students from the rest of the UK will, unfortunately, lose out. A spokeswoman from the British Medical Association also raised concerns about losing talented medics from other parts of the UK. She said, Recruitment and retention of valuable skilled doctors is a pressing issue here in Scotland, and it is a fact that we need more doctors to cope with the ever-increasing demands of a growing and ageing population on our NHS. However, we must be very careful that we are not turning away the highest quality students simply because we may lose them to another part of the UK or overseas. Scotland's NHS has an excellent workforce, and perhaps we should be focusing on how we can make it a more attractive place to work for graduates and encourage them that this is a great place to live and build their careers. Dr Kerry Lunan, Chair of the Royal College of GPs Scotland, added, Scotland urgently needs to increase its GP workforce if it is to continue to meet the increasingly complex healthcare needs of patients. There are currently not enough GPs working in Scotland, with many GPs opting to leave the profession altogether and not enough GPs being recruited into the profession to plug this gap. Liz Smith, education spokeswoman for the Scottish Conservative Party, said the decision would lead to many highly qualified students losing out. She said, There can be no surprise that this policy is causing concern among our universities, most especially that the direct cost of increasing the place for Scots would be placed on students from elsewhere in the UK. There is yet more evidence of the deeply damaging discrimination inherent within SNP higher education policy. A Scottish Funding Council spokesman said, Analysis of medical students' destinations show that Scots domiciled graduates are more likely to stay and work in Scotland. By increasing the number of places for those already resident in Scotland, the needs of NHS Scotland are being recognised with a view to ensuring that Scotland has the number of doctors it needs to support communities across the country. The government said it was more cost-effective to replace 100 RUK places with Scottish domiciled students rather than creating a further 100 new undergraduate places. This is because the Scottish Government currently funds the clinical training of both Scottish and RUK students, which costs £10,000 a year per student. 
Over a five-year degree course, the cost of replacing 100 RUK students with 100 Scottish students after five years would be £9 million, compared to £32 million for the creation of 100 new undergraduate places for Scotland domiciled students. Currently, students from the European Union, EU, will also be able to apply for the new Scottish-funded places under EU rules, although this may change after Brexit. David Beckham's fatherly kisses show love in an ear-kissing world. An article by Katrina Stewart, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of July 2019. Creepy, weird... Creepy. I quote there Piers Morgan taking a stand against Donald Trump's unhealthy objectification of his oldest daughter. The television presenter, having us cast our collective mind back to 2016, reminded us of the then Republican presidential candidate's appearance on the Dr. Oz show. As Trump and Ivanka waited on stage for the cameras to begin rolling, the not-yet-politician kissed his child. It's nice, Dr Oz said, to see a dad kiss his daughter. Trump, as he is prone, ruined the moment. By the account of several studio witnesses, Trump replied that he kisses Ivanka with every chance I get. It felt uncomfortable, creepy, weird creepy, because Trump has formed for admiring his daughter in a deeply inappropriate way. When a 16-year-old Ivanka hosted the 1997 Miss Teen USA pageant, Trump said to the then Miss Universe, Don't you think my daughter's hot? She's hot, right? To the radio and television personality Howard Stern, Trump said it was fine to describe his child as a piece of ass. He has described her as voluptuous. He has said on more than one occasion that Ivanka wasn't his daughter, he would be dating her. So when it came to passing comment on weird and creepy fatherly attentions, Mr Morgan took the difficult decision to line up his good friend Trump in his crosshairs and fire. Oh, excuse us, there's a hand up at the back. What? Not Trump? It wasn't the US President Pierce was talking about. It was David Beckham's parental attentions he thought were creepy and weird. I suppose one man's affectionate gesture is another man's commenting approvingly on his daughter's breasts, right? So if Piers doesn't see fit to condemn when the President of the United States comments sexually about his daughter, what on earth can poor old Bex have done? David Beckham shows affection for his seven-year-old daughter Harper by kissing her on the lips. Piers, as he is prone ruined the moment. On Good Morning Britain earlier this month, he condemned the footballer as behaving inappropriately towards his daughter. It wasn't the first time Beckham had faced ire for the gesture of kissing his little girl on the mouth. In 2017, the same thing happened, and in 2016, Victoria Beckham faced criticism for the same thing. 
On Friday, almost as if he doesn't give two hoots whether Piers Morgan believes his parenting to be subpar, Golden Balls was photographed at the semi-final of the Women's World Cup in Le Havre, France, giving Harper an affectionate peck on the mouth. One would have expected, following counsel from Super Nanny Morgan, for Beckham to have switched to a firm handshake with a squeeze of the shoulder saved for poignant milestone moments. Why would a father kiss his daughter on the lips? asked Mr Morgan. Love? Affection? Care? To show her she is cherished and adored, particularly in a world of air-kissing and fake intimacy, that they have a special bond. To suggest such a gesture has sexualised undertones shows just how far wrong we have gone as a society. Instead of praising a loving, supportive father and child relationship, people look on with distaste and discomfort. Until she died when I was in my early 20s, I would always kiss my gran on the lips. It was such a special gesture, a sign of our closeness and importance to each other as family. She was mine and I was hers and it was a nice wee thing that made me feel loved. Recently at a family gathering I said goodbye to my uncle with a kiss on the lips and the gesture meant the world to me. We don't see each other often and I'd forgotten about it. It buoyed me so much that I emailed a friend about it that evening. My dad was never involved in my life and I'm an only child, so growing up with that gesture it felt like my uncle was marking me out as one of his girls, along with my two female cousins. It's a tiny thing that feels really special and without a male role model at home it shows how affection should feel. The thought of anyone condemning this as inappropriate is deeply dispiriting. It's familial love, a most precious thing. Children must be encouraged and enabled to set their own boundaries, of course. As soon as kissing a family member becomes uncomfortable or embarrassing or simply something the child doesn't want to do, then it should stop. Children have a right to autonomy over their own bodies and it's important they aren't forced to take a sloppy kiss on the cheek from an auntie or give a family friend a hug when they don't feel like it. Physical affection needs to make them feel secure. It's vital they know they can say no. If love and affection between a parent and child makes a person feel like a voyeur, the problem lies with them. Beckham is a role model for healthy, nurturing fatherhood, and there are plenty who could learn from him. Q and Review Print Speaking to the Blind are a charity based in Bishop Briggs. We're currently looking to recruit volunteer access to audio ambassadors in Eastern Bartonshire to place leaflets and business cards at businesses, shops and amenities in the area and to show the public how to listen to daily and weekly online articles from the Herald Scotland, Evening Times, The National and Inside Soap magazine for free. If you would like to volunteer and become an Access to Audio Ambassador, please contact Michael Rankin on 0141 772 3976 or email aaatl at qandreview.com. That's aaatl at qandreview.com. In addition, we are also recruiting for volunteer readers and technicians. 
If you're interested in reading or technically supporting a recording team, please contact us on 0141 772 3976 or email information at qreview.com. Details of all of our volunteering opportunities are available on our website at qreview.com. Thank you. Now, back to the main programme. The Herald Scotland Opinion Recorded on the 4th of July 2019 Agenda Constitutional dilemma looms if we have a PM without a Commons majority. From the Agenda column by former diplomat George Ferguson We find ourselves accidentally as a parliamentary democracy in a strange kind of do-it-yourself presidential election. The narrow sliver of population forming the electorate is only one of the oddities. But even as the two MPs running for the top job are pressed to set out distinct policies that would normally go through party conferences and manifestos, have we really given up on a representative parliamentary system? Maybe not. One of the obscure but stronger conventions in recent decades has been to keep the Queen out of political controversy at almost any cost. In 2010, Gordon Brown stayed on uncomfortably under heavy press pressure, the squatter of Downing Street until it was clear and uncontroversial for the Queen to invite David Cameron to form a government. Suppose that a week before the result of the Conservative leadership election, polling showed that Mr Johnson would win, the DUP, in a return to its free Presbyterian roots, then made clear that, under him, they would not maintain their confidence and supply arrangement, or perhaps and, a dozen Conservative MPs said that they would not support him as PM, Nonetheless, Mr Johnson is elected party leader, Theresa May takes Prime Minister's questions next day for the last time before resigning office, and, as announced recently, the Parliament goes into recess the day after that, on Mr Johnson's first day as Prime Minister. Could Mrs May fairly leave Downing Street at this point, if there were real doubts about Mr Johnson's ability to command a majority? For the Queen to invite Mr Johnson to form a government with no sitting Parliament, with this question hanging for months till Parliament returns, seems a recipe for uncertainty. The looming prospect of a no-confidence vote and its possible loss when Parliament reassembled would not help the government in its high-speed renegotiation of our EU withdrawal agreement. In Ireland, a new Talseach is endorsed by the DAL before taking office when British Prime Ministers were elected by MPs from a party with a cohesive majority, this was unnecessary. It now looks attractive. Even under our current principles, it is not automatic that the leader of a party without a majority becomes Prime Minister. It may sometimes be impossible. As is regularly said, we are now in uncharted constitutional waters. What could be done? Mrs May would have two choices, both uncomfortable. She could keep to the newly announced timetable, Parliament would go into recess, but with her as caretaker PM, pending the sorting out of the Prime Ministerial job, when Parliament came back, or she could delay the recess, still as caretaker, and aim to get things sorted before letting the MPs have their holiday. If we don't try an option on these lines, but follow the path assumed by most commentators, what may happen? Mr Johnson is elected, becoming PM without an assured parliamentary majority. The Queen is then expected to invite Mr Johnson to form an administration, perhaps on Mrs May's recommendation, but in the face of widespread doubts that he has a Commons majority, on the Queen's say-so alone, and with no Parliament available to test his credentials, he then becomes Prime Minister for several months. 
during which important negotiations and perhaps decisions are taken about the UK's long-term future. This is widely assumed to be where we are heading. It put a massive strain on the residual constitutional powers of the monarch, which few can want, and it must call into question however it would provide a convincing platform for a UK government to negotiate with our EU partners urgently before October the 31st. Time for more thinking in advance. From the Agenda column by former diplomat George Ferguson. Ewan Walker hopes it's third time lucky in Open Championship push. An article by Nick Roger, golf correspondent, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 2nd of July 2019. If the RNA had a close but no cigar exemption category for the Opian Championship, then Ewan Walker would probably be already planning his trip to Royal Portrush in a fortnight's time. Having been pipped to the amateur championship title on the final green at Port Marnock a week past Saturday, the Barassi man finished second again in the European Amateur Championship at the weekend. Had he won either of those events, Walker would have been rewarded with a tea time for the Open. Today, at Fairmont St Andrews, the Scot will be hoping it's third time lucky when he competes in the Open's 36-hole final qualifier. Second place would be good enough this time, said Walker. In fact, third would be good enough too. The problem, of course, is that 90-odd players are battling it out for just three Portrush places on offer in an all-or-nothing shootout that would make the gunfight at the OK Corral look like a minor disagreement in the HR department. It is difficult to be disappointed given how well I have played in those two events, but it would be brilliant to be playing in the open, said a philosophical walker about his near misses. I played in regional qualifying four or five years ago and didn't make it through. To be honest, my game wasn't anywhere near good enough at the time to play in the open anyway. I'm not exactly sure why I entered. I think it was because a lot of my friends were giving it a go, so I decided to join them. But I have improved a lot since then, so I'm in a better position to give it a go this time round. Amateur dramatics are often part of the Open, and the efforts last year of his Scottish colleague, Sam Locke, who survived the qualifying scramble and then won the silver medal at Carnoustie, has given Walker plenty of motivation. He added, I think that watching Sam come through last year made a lot of people think, oh, you know what, I think I can actually qualify for the Open, perform well in it and have a chance of winning the silver medal. I think that has spurred people on, myself included. Yesterday, Walker was named in the six-man Scotland team for the forthcoming European Amateur Team Championships, while his recent exploits have given him a great chance of representing GB&I in September's Walker Cup. The team isn't announced until the middle of August, but I have put myself in a brilliant position, he said. Walker is one of a host of Scottish hopefuls competing today with qualifiers also taking place at Knott's Hollenwell, Prince's and St Anne's Old Links. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly talking newspaper digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review 
and the producer was Jordan Duncan. Q&R Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity, number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141 772 3976.